Good morning, Carpenter's Way. Why don't you guys get up on your feet, find somebody to tell them.
Hello, there I am. I'm sorry, I was talking with people. I'm a little late. Chad did tell me that that Joy to the World was short, the, the speed at which they played it. We're happy and fast. Anyway, good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas. You should say it everywhere. It throws people off, and it's fun. So you guys doing okay? And it, and it was uh, lots of rain this weekend. Lots of rain. But it does feel festive, doesn't it? You know, for those of you who have never lived in snowy areas, that kind of rain, we'd have had like 32 feet of snow. I, w I always think that when it just pours here. But, um, you know, for the most part, we, I think we survived it. I'm glad you're here. I hope you're enjoying the season. Get out there in the crowds and get to know people and shake their hands and wish them a Merry Christmas. It's such a cool time of the year. People who are already generally friendly in East Texas get twice as friendly. And, uh, you know, and if you, if you dress down a little bit, people will buy you your coffee. They just feel festive. So not that I've ever done that. You have to, and if they don't offer to buy you coffee, look like you need them to. Watch, stare at their cup, and every time they drink, you just lick your lips. And it'll happen. Not that I know that. I read it in a, on Facebook or something. But anyway, it's good to see you, waking you up a little bit. It's, we are going to have a good time in the Word this morning. We have been studying since October of last year. We have been studying. We started in the book of Ruth, and we went through starting in the book Time of the Judges to the Kings, and we wrapped up last week with Solomon. And this week we're going, um, I'm going to tell the history of the, of the Hebrew nation, and uh, it's, it's going to be good. I know it's like, <laughs> it won't be tired. You, won't, you will not fall asleep. If you do, I'll call you out while I preach. So uh, 
I'm, I'm kidding. I wouldn't do that. But uh, it's going to be a good time in the Word. Thank you for being here. For those of you who decided to be lazy because you think it's cold out and uh, you're watching at home, we're glad you're logging in as well and our hope and, and our prayers that you're encouraged by being with us today. Um, for those of you in the room, would you open your worship guide because there's lots of stuff coming up and I, I want to make sure that you don't miss any of them. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome to Carpenter's Way. It is our hope and prayer you're encouraged having been with us this morning. Um, and again, as I had already mentioned, you're, you are on the tail end of a study we've been doing for well over a year. We are going to start in January a new study, um, and it's, uh, it's entitled, Who is This Man? And it is, a, it is a study of all four Gospels, chronologically, the life of Jesus Christ. And it should only take us six to seven years to get through there. So it's going to be a quick study. You'll need to be here or you'll miss it. No, it's going to be a great time. So, and you may have, uh, let me encourage you also, we're going to start posting stuff on Facebook about it, and I'd encourage you to share that. Uh, and you may have some friends that have never studied the life of Christ. That's, that's what we're going to do. It's, it's like out of stained glass. We're just going to look at what it says and answer why does he do what he does in that time. For those of you who have never studied Christ's life in chronological order, you might be a little surprised to see how thing actually, things actually played out. We're going to start right after the Christmas story. Jesus' birth, uh, Mary, our uh, he meets with uh, Anna and Simeon, and then we're going to start right there and go through his life and the miracles. So it's going to be a wonderful time together, and we want to encourage you to be a part of that. But before we hit there, there is lots of activities here at Carpenter's Way to be involved in. And they're all here to encourage you and to help you build relationships with other people. Um, the, uh, the first one is for our students. There's a second one party a week from this Wednesday night, information in there or in the student ministry about it. But we have our family Christmas service on December 23rd. Don't forget that. That will be a one-hour-long service. There's no Bible study after. Um, invite your family and your friends. We want to pack this house out. And it, is, it starts at 930. It'll end right around 1030. And it's a wonderful opportunity um, for you to encourage people, but also to be encouraged. We're going to have a great time together um, that morning. Uh, also, that night in our parking lot, we're going to have a walk-in theater. Outdoor, dress warm. Um, if it rains, we'll move it indoors in here. But uh, what we want you to do is we want you to bring your favorite Christmas movie junk food. Uh, and we're going to put a bunch of tables out there, and we'll, all, uh, we'll have a, a, a disgusting Christmas potluck of junk food. So uh, it's not disgusting. It'll be good. That, that was the wrong adjective. But plan on joining us for that. That's the 23rd. That's not just for Carpenter's Way. If you know any friends or people, we're going to be showing the movie The Star, and uh, it'll be outdoors in the parking lot. That's going to be a lot of fun. And then, of course, we have our candlelight service on Christmas Eve. It's from 6 to 6.30. Um, I've been talking to some of our folks. You may have family members, uh, uh, parents, who can no longer get out and get to church. This is a really nice service for people to come to. We basically sing the carols and we read the scripture. It's 30 minutes long. But if you have an aunt or an uncle or a parent or a neighbor that can't get to church, this is a great, great opportunity to invite them. So use this season to reach out to people uh, and encourage them and be encouraged. But uh, try to be here as much as you can. And uh, the rest of the information I'm going to let you read through. Remember that during the holiday season, we still need people to be praying for each other. So you'll get the prayer guides uh, in there each week. Uh, be, be praying for each other as well. So I think that does it at this time. I'm going to have our ushers come forward as we take our offering. You'll notice in there as they come forward that there's two envelopes, a normal giving envelope, but also an end-of-year gift envelope. Uh, we fall, we've, uh, have fallen behind a little bit in our budget this year, but also... Um, it would be nice if we could raise a little money for the building renovation program. And if you are willing and able to give above and beyond your normal giving, we would appreciate you giving in that envelope, and uh, that will help us get closer. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, we're trying to renovate our bathrooms and 
uh, right next door. We own all this, and in the middle, uh, we want to we want to do a complete renovation of that for an adult discipleship wing, and and uh, so that's what we're doing right now. So if you're able to help with an end of year gift, we'd appreciate that. So let's pray. Let's ask God to bless our time, and um, we'll continue on. Father, we thank you um, for uh, heaters and warm houses and a building we can come in and be comfortable in and. We thank you for the internet, Father, that allows people to watch online uh, as they travel or as they're home. And Lord, I thank you for instruments that help us worship you. Um, I thank you for music. I thank you for uh, the word of God that doesn't return void, that speaks to us and encourages us. And Lord Jesus, I ask you this morning to, to do just that, to encourage us. I thank you for new friends as people visit and old friends as we get to see each other. Lord Jesus, it is our, our heart's cry that you speak to us this morning in a very special way. Thank you again for allowing us to gather. Lord, thank you for those that will be giving. We pray you'd bless them um, and return to them as they have given to you as part of their worship. We love you, Lord. Now meet with us here. In Jesus' name, amen. The offering plate passes. You guys can stand and worship with us if you want. All that is within me cry for you, Lord. Be glorified, Emmanuel. God with us. My heart sings a brand new song. The dead is paid. These chains are gone, Emmanuel. Oh, God with us.
Oh, such a tiny offering compared to Calvary, and nevertheless, we lay it at your feet, and all that is within me cries for you. People who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. You will rejoice, or they will rejoice before you. As people rejoice in the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned, and they will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Christ has come, oh Christ has come, hallelujah. 
let us sing and praise the King. Oh, hallelujah. We bow down before the one glorified risen Son. Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Savior, oh, he was born unto us, hallelujah, oh, Christ has come. Oh, Christ has come, hallelujah, so let us sing and praise the King, oh, hallelujah, oh, Christ has come, yeah, Christ has come, oh, hallelujah. standing why don't you stand and we're gonna sing this Christmas carol we'll come all you faithful oh come all 
You may be seated. <coughs> the children are dismissed uh, for our GPS all the way up through fifth grade as they prepare for our Christmas program. Um, you know, cr- Christmas is a is a funny time for Christians. Um, we let's just be honest. I love Christmas. We love Christmas. Uh, Hallmark movies make it great. For those of you who don't get Hallmark movies, you don't have to think during a Hallmark movie. Even the dude she dumps is going to like her at the end of the movie. So, and that's the point. Right, ladies? Thank you. It doesn't involve sticking your fingers in the gut of an animal to pull out its insides. It's just clean. Uh, having said that, for Christians... Um, and, and, I, and maybe many of you have never even thought about this. It's kind of conflicting because um, it's, a, it's a Jewish story. It's a Hebrew story, but we don't really know how it all fits together. And in fact, much of the, much of the evangelical church today has abandoned the Old Testament um, except to, to claim promises that aren't for us, um, and, and that's called lying. Um, but a lot of the times, the only time we refer back to the Old Testament, because we don't have to know how to deal with all that war stuff, or a God who tells David to kill these people. We don't know what to do with all that. So we spend all of our time in the New Testament and very little time in the Old Testament. And i got to be honest with you, we're missing out on the big picture. And the big picture is phenomenal. Although the big picture takes some work. And uh, we have been, over the past year and a half or so, we have been looking from the time of the judges all the way through to Solomon's sons. Such a small swatch of the Jewish history, but super important. And this morning what I want to do is uh, almost as risky as reading all of Ecclesiastes last week. I want to take you through the history of the Hebrew nation because it matters. Um, We live in a time where modern Christendom is entertainment 80%. And I'm not saying that there's not goodness in that entertainment, but the truth is, and I I, want to remind you of that over the next couple weeks, the truth is that beyond the goodness or badness of the entertainment of the church, beyond the effectiveness of our dramas, beyond, beyond... the effectiveness of our music or the rowdiness of it, I want you to know that there is truth that is going to save your rear end for eternity. There is hope beyond church services. There is hope beyond Christmas presents. There's hope beyond music. There is hope. And we have moved into a time of Christendom where we worship the worship. And, and that's, there's, that's okay to some degree. But if you never get beyond the worship and find out why we're worshiping, for instance, you just sang the word Hosanna which is a Hebraic word which means praise the Lord, and we don't even think about it anymore. We sing away in a manger, and we have no idea. I mean, we have kind of some idea, but why Bethlehem? Why this? And, and then we get it, and we go, oh, that's nice, but we don't realize how important it is. So I've got 54 minutes, um, and I know that sounds like a long time, but it's not. I'm going to keep moving, but I'm going to tell you the story, history of the Hebrew nation. And these little stories, if you stick with me, and I, I, that our, our wet willy rule is in order. If the person in front of you nods off, just lick your fingers and stick them in their ears, because this is super important. And Satan doesn't want it important to you and I. But it's so important. And I will tell you at the end, at the end of this story, if you will listen to me, it'll be cool, because all these Sunday school stories you've heard as kids, well, you'll find out how they fit into the big story. Because I promise you that the 90 weeks of Daniel, for those of you who study prophecy, was not about figuring out when the return of Christ was going to be. That's not the point. And we've gotten off of the point. And the stories of, of, faithful, of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not about a fiery furnace and a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. It was about God keeping his commitment to a group of people he promised and he, he made promises to and he loved despite their absolute continual rebellion of him. If you are here this morning or watching on the Internet and you believe that you could lose your salvation, 
If you are here or watching on the internet this morning and you believe you can't lose your salvation, but you can reject it, you can say to God, I want nothing to do with you. This morning's message is for you. Because if God's track record with people is, has any impact on what we know of God, then wait till you hear this story in context. It should blow your mind. I want to remind you that you are not sitting here listening to a preacher exposit scripture. You are in my living room, and I want to tell you a story. The story is told in a boring way in Matthew chapter 1. Listen to this. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perah was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of a weird spelled guy's name. Aminadab was the father of Nahashan. Nahashan was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was, was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahab. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers born at the time of the exile in Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiakim became the fa- was the father of, of uh, Shittil. Shittil was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abud. Abud was the father of Elikim. Elikim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zedek. Zedek was the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of uh, Mattahum. Mattahum was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Thank you. I deserve a clap for that. Most of those were named, names were mispronounced, but you wouldn't know any different. Having said that, that's a lot of stuff. And, and we've all, maybe if you've been around like I have, you've heard messages preached on those and they're really, really interesting. But ultimately that list is there for Hebraic history, but also so that verse 17 means something. Verse 17 is a summarization. All of those listed above included, include 14 generations from Abraham to David. Take a breath. I want you to picture that in your mind because you know the story of Abraham. You know who King David is. We just studied him. So 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile. You know when that happens because that's the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, get your mind around that. And then from the story of the exile, 14 generations to the Messiah. How interesting, how nifty that God would make it 14, 14, and 14. But that's the outline of today's message. That's the summarization of all those names that you read that you never need to read again. The fact is that God, it started with Abraham and it ends with Messiah. God had a plan. God had a plan and there was no way that anybody could mess it up, including this people that said, we don't want you. That is what they said to God. We say that the Hebrew people were sinful people. They weren't sinful people. They were rebellious people. They were rejecting people. They said to God, we don't want you. Each person I just listed listed in Matthew chapter 1 from verse 1 through 16, famous or not, was part of that plan. Every one of them. 
the Hebrew nation was a huge part of God's plan. So I'm going to do a lot of reading because i got a lot of stuff. So bear with me if I don't look at you as much as usual. But this is super cool stuff. But those names, whether you know them or not, they're part of God's plan. And I want you to understand that the Hebrew nation was not the plan. It was just a significant part of it. And since October of last year, we've been working through a section of that plan. On, Sunday, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through Genesis, and we've been talking about Abraham through, we're at Joseph now. And then you can jump forward. You know what happens, those of you who've been here Wednesday night. After Joseph, you have 450 years in Egypt, and eventually it ends with the Exodus. And the Exodus takes us into the Promised Land. And they hang out there for a while until you have the times of the judges, which you're aware of. That includes Samuel. It includes Joshua. And it ends with uh, where we started our study last October with the last judge, who was uh, Samuel. And then Samuel leads us to the king because his kids were so wicked, the people wanted kings. And we'll get into that. So you have the three kings. You have Saul, David, and Solomon. And then you have blowing up of the nation. So that's the history of the Jewish nation. The plan of God did not center on the nation, the Hebrew nation, but they were significant. The plan, according to Ephesians, centered on Jesus. Jesus wasn't the plan, but he was the fulfillment. He was the way that that plan would come to fruition. The plan's goal was not built on building a nation or giving people what they wanted. It was centered on Abraham to, and even the Jewish disciples. It was redeeming, forgiving, saving, and adopting them as a nation and as individuals. It was a plan built on God's, God's love and passion for them. In the time we have this story, I want to, uh, this, this morning, I want to tell you that story. It is the story of the Hebrew nation as outlined in that verse, put on the screen behind you. Three sections, 14 generations in each of those sections. And I want to start with Deuteronomy chapter 7 that tells you why God fulfilled his plan like that. Why did God choose this nation? In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Jehovah tells the people, For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on the earth, the Lord has, your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other nations, for you're actually the smallest of all the nations. Rather, pay attention here, this is the reason why God chose the Hebrew nation. It was simply that the Lord loves you. Before you read on, stop. Just take a breath. He loves them. For God so loved the Hebrew nation. That's why they are what we know they are. That's why they were special. He said, I love these people. The reason that he keeps all this stuff we just read, you guys, is because he was keeping the oath he had sworn to their ancestors. That's this morning's outline. The only reason God didn't send a second flood and just flooded out the Hebrew nation, which would not have been a violation of the rainbow commitment, the reason he doesn't destroy them, the reason he hasn't let even Hitler destroy these people is because he made a promise based upon his love for them. He made a promise. The reason that God didn't destroy the nation when Solomon went his own way, when David slept with Bathsheba, when Saul had no heart for God. The reason he doesn't get rid of them is because he loves them and he had sworn an oath to their ancestors. And God is not truthful. He is, in fact, the noun truth. God never, ever, ever breaks his promises. Ever, ever, ever. He can't break his promises. 
That's the, that's the story. The story is God made a commitment based upon his love, and he will not break that commitment. Because he loved this nation, he decided to make them pivotal in God's ultimate plan. He never gave up on them despite their treatment of him. Because God made a promise to this sheep farmer that we know as Abraham that he would bless the world through them. It was through this small, ragtag, unimpressive, rebellious, messed up group of people that God would introduce himself to the world. Even though they never really liked him. Even despite all the supernatural things he does about them. Even despite the promise to bless them. None of them really liked him. And I would include Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'd include all of them in this. They liked him when he did stuff for them, but they didn't necessarily like them. But he loved them. This is reflected in, in the New Testament scripture that says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to understand that God loves people even before they even think he's cool. God loves you. But that's not what today's story is about. Today's story is about God loving them. And for the 14 generations, this nation, uh, the first 14, this nation goes through fits and starts of seeing God's supernatural hand, trusting him, and then wanting to do their own thing, starting with Abraham. I want you to get this. God has chosen, based upon his love for them and his promises, that he was going to use this sinful, self-indulgent, ragtab group of men and women through the generations simply because that was his promise to do it. Men like Isaac and Jacob. Men like Aaron and Moses. And in, in case your mind is, is overflowing with, with flowery thoughts of these men, might I remind you that when we have studied these people out of stained glass windows, We've seen who they are. I want to remind you that it was Aaron that gathered all the gold at the base of Mount Sinai because Moses, his boss, was up in the mountain too long, and he actually gathers all the gold from the earrings and the wealth of the people that they had been given from Egypt. I almost said stolen. Taken from Egypt, and he throws it into a big vat, and he makes a false god out of it, a cow, the golden calf. And when Moses comes back down the mountain and says, what are you doing? He says, I don't know. We took the gold and threw it in the fire, and out came a cow. <laughs> That's Aaron. In our brains, it's like, oh, Aaron, yeah, he was such a good man. No, he wasn't. He wasn't a good man, and neither was Moses. I want to remind you that when Moses finally gets on his way to Egypt, he still hadn't circumcised his boys, which was part of the commandment. He wasn't raising them as Jewish boys or Hebrew boys. He was in blatant rebellion against God. He did not want to go to Egypt. We have made the story so cute by saying, that he was a stutterer. There is no historical re reason to believe that Moses was a stutterer. It was an excuse like your kids use when they have chocolate all over their face after you told them not to eat the chocolate. I don't know what happened. I was standing here and the chocolate jumped in my mouth. I don't know, man. Or the cookie's missing and you go, did you eat a cookie? <laughs> I didn't eat a cookie. Well, then why do you have cookie all over your face? I don't know. That's Moses. I know that he, he says, I'm, I, I don't speak well, but God didn't seem to have a problem with that. But God had said, Moses is my man. And so there was no way Moses, like Jonah, wasn't going to be the guy because God loved Moses. And God had made a prophecy that he was going to use this guy, and he would not, not fulfill that promise. Uh, the other people in the story are Joshua. You remember Joshua, he was the guy that got to tell eight times to be a man of courage. Gideon, 
women like Naomi, who we remember so fondly, and, 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 and we love that name. But if you realize she was in rebellion, which is what led Ruth to, or, or Ruth to even be in her family. They should never have left Jerusalem. We started with that story when we studied Ruth. We look at her as a heroine, but she was a rebellious Jewish girl. And do you remember that when she walks back into Jerusalem after her husband and boys are dead, with Ruth at her side, she tells him not to call her Naomi, call me Mara, for my life is such a pain. God has, we left with so much, and I come back with nothing. God hates me. That's Naomi. People like Ruth, who are amazing. Sarah who laughed at God when he said he was going to give her a child. Esther. I'm not going to talk about Esther. She's amazing. How about Rahab the, the whore? These are the people that God used. These men and women are not sinless or even godly. They were men and women who doubted and questioned and rebelled against God. Even when he promised, when he met with them and said, I'm going to do this, they pushed back on him but were called out because he loved them and he made a promise that he would never abandon them. Getting a theme? It was during the first 14 generations that, that we looked at in Matthew. That he refers to Abraham, between Abraham and Babylonian exile, that the Hebrew nation was enslaved in Egypt and then the exodus takes place. During that first 14 generation period, they go through the wilderness wanderings, the death of Moses and the entrance to the promised land in the times of the judges. In the promised land, you have amazing moments like Jericho under powerful leadership of Joshua. And then you have tragic moments like Samson, Naomi and Ruth that I've already described. And then in the ultimate national rejection of God, this period ends in 1 Samuel chapter 8 with this conversation. All of the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss this matter with Samuel. Look, they said, you're now old. Your sons aren't like you. Give us a king, a human king is what they mean, to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say, the Lord replied, for they have rejected me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who are asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to chariots and charioteers. And he goes on to warn them. And then it ends with this, and I know I'm messing you up, Louise, but I want to keep moving. In verse 19, can you jump down there for me? Verse 19, after he warns them of what's going to happen with a human king, which we just studied for the last six months, everything he said would happen. The people refused to listen. I'm pointing at the scripture. Look at this. This is how hard-headed these people are. After being told exactly what's going to happen, they respond by saying, even so, we want a king. So to be clear, these aren't people going, this isn't just David looking over the uh, balcony at Bathsheba going, she's hot and I don't have any wives. Oops, I messed up. I stubbed my toe and used a bad word. These people are actually saying after God warns them through supernatural means, eh, we still don't want you. That's what happens in this story. They go on to say, we want to be, in verse 20, we want to be like the nations around us. So God says, I want to make you special. They say, we want to be like everybody else. For those of you who believe you can't lose your salvation, but you can reject God enough to lose it, look at this. They do that. This is Peter on steroids, but when he denies Christ, 
This is people looking up into heaven, seeing fire there, talking into the pillar of fire, and going, we don't like you, God. We want to be like everybody else. And they have been doing this from the base of Mount Sinai, where God wanted to put the tent of meeting, a prayer tent, where people could go and approach God directly, and they go, we really don't want to meet with God. Why don't you move it outside of the camp, and we'll send Moses to talk to God, and he can tell us what God said. Let me be clear. It wasn't just the leadership. It was the very uh, lowest man and woman in the Hebrew society that wanted nothing to do with God. They kept pushing him away and pushing him away and pushing him away until eventually they demand a king. Despite all that God had promised them and all that they had seen him do supernaturally from the plagues, the Red Sea walk, manna in the wilderness, the walls of Jericho falling out supernaturally simply because they shout. There's something that happens every day. Despite seeing all that they had seen, they rejected God who loved them for human kings. And they got Saul, and as we've studied, we found out he had no heart for God. Then they had David, who although having a whole heart for God, was a sinful man whose sin not only destroyed his family, but divided the nation. We studied Solomon just in recent weeks, the son of Bathsheba and David. And we learned that although he loved God, he only had a half heart for God. So he mixed his own pagan fleshly worship of false gods, gods who don't even breathe. I, I just, I just want to make you disgusted with this. I want you to go, how could these people do that? God show fire from heaven on a regular basis for these people. The things that you and I can only dream and read about. He did amazing things in their midst like the walls of Jericho falling just because they marched around it seven times. He did those things among them, and they went, what do you got for me today? We don't want you. They rejected him over and over again. And Solomon did, does the same thing. He meets with God. God talks with him on at least twice, two different occasions. And last week we studied at the end of his life, this man who had accomplished everything he set out to do. Every one of us in this room have goals. i got to tell you something. They're all different. This guy accomplished every one of those goals. If we took and wrote on pieces of paper what we could have, if we could have anything in life, every one of them was fulfilled in his life. And at the end of his life, we learned last week at the end of Ecclesiastes, he's going, I have one conclusion for you, my son. Honor God, fear the Lord. Nothing else matters. It's all like blowing in the wind. But his son's been listening. Upon Solomon's death at the age of 60, his son Rehoboam becomes king. The problem is that the ten northern tribes refuse to follow him, and they, make, uh, and, and they take on one of Solomon's officials by the name of Jeroboam to be their king. So in, immediately, the nation splits back in two. You've got the northern tribes that will forever be known as Israel, and you have the southern tribe called Judah. And it's eaten by one of the, uh, the tribe of Simeon, so it actually is two tribes at the base, but it's one now. And you have them separated. And you might look at that, and they might look, at, a theologian may look at that and go, well, I guess God's done with them. Because from there, they split, split from two to four, and then from four, they're just eaten up by the rest of the world. That's when the Babylonian captivity comes in. Nebuchadnezzar, you're familiar with him? He kidnaps Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel and takes them in. There's no more Israel at this point. But it starts with this, where the nation under Solomon is one and united and has a a one, an amazing 30-some years of success. And then it, when he dies, it's split in two and then eventually split into four. And then it splinters. And they not only fight other nations of the world, but they fight each other. You would think 
that as we look back at history, we could say that God turned his back on them. But that's not what it tells us. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 11, listen to, listen to this. If you don't believe that God has a plan, even when we turn our back on him, look at this. 1 Kings 11 verse 9. The Lord was very angry with Solomon. Okay, so I'm bringing you back into Solomon's reign. For his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon didn't listen to the Lord's command. So now the Lord said to him, Since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. Take a breath. That's Jeroboam, not his son. That's the other guy who gets the ten tribes right after his death. Keep going for 12. But for the sake of your father David, I will, do, I will not do this while you're alive. I will take the kingdom away from your son. Even so, I will not take away the entire kingdom. I will let him be the king of one tribe. Okay, this isn't sexy like the birth of Jesus in a manger with three wise men, which didn't happen right there. But you've got to see this. This is God prophesying, dude, you've turned your back on me, and now I'm going to remove the kingdom from you. But I'm not going to do it in your lifetime. After you're dead, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to give it to one of your servants. And that's exactly what happens. As soon as Solomon is dead, Rehoboam, his son, gets the kingship. The ten tribes of the north reject him. And guess who takes it? A servant, just like it was prophesied. Just like God promised, I'm going to give it to a servant. And then your son, though, I'm not going to remove his throne because I made a promise. You know what that promise was? One of your sons will be on the throne forever. I am going to reign through your lineage. And ultimately, I'm going to put an eternal king on the throne. Yes, thank you. You're with me, right? That's Jesus. That's Yeshua. The, the name Jesus means salvation. He is the king of Israel. In case you're not clear, Jesus is not an American. Sorry to my Mormon friends. Jesus, this is not an American religion. This is a Hebraic religion that begins with God redeeming the Hebrew people that he loved and he promised to redeem. This is the fulfillment of that. These people invariably flipped God a religious bird and he never, ever stopped. He keeps his promise. It's exactly what happens after Solomon's death. The kingdom is split in two, never to be united again as a monarchy. Don't worry, it will again. It will again. King Jesus will sit on the throne of David. Okay, that doesn't turn you on. That's really good news. If you look at all this, why does this matter? And I, I'm going to tell you now, and I'm going to keep telling you. It matters because God's will is never thwarted by man's sin. It can cause us pain, but he is never disillusioned. He's never discouraged. His love and his promises are, are predominant above everything else. So to make a very long short story short in time, this divided kingdom continues down the path of rejecting the God who loved them and chose them. They chose to worship fake human gods over the real God that promised them success if they would just bow the knee to him. They chose these fake human-made idols under leaders like Ahab and Jezebel. So after Solomon, you have these characters. You remember the story of Ahab and Jezebel? If you don't remember that story, that's the king and queen that after Elijah called fire down from heaven on Mount Carmel, said, we're going to kill this guy. Because every time Elijah shows up before them, he gives them bad news. So they think if we kill him, it's going to solve our problem. During this period of history, the first 14 generations between Abraham and the Babylonian exile, God sends them Elijah, Elisha, Amos and Hosea, even Jeremiah and Isaiah. That was all during this time period. This first 14 generation, God never abandons his people. In fact, that's why these minor prophets are important. God never abandons these people despite them abandoning him. 
The reason you have all those minor prophets in the Old Testament aren't so that we can get you to give more during offerings. If you give, God will return. That's not it. Or that Americans can be promised uh, a good future based upon those. It's because while they are rebelling against God, he continued to send covenant enforcers to call them back into right relationship with God. And he would send these people. And eventually he sends Hosea. And you remember Hosea and the story of Gomer. Hosea is the prophet that God instructed to actually marry the town prostitute. We were talking about this Wednesday night. And so he marries the town prostitute. And guess what? She sneaks out and starts sleeping with everybody again. And this happens, I think, three different occasions or two different occasions. Eventually, she is left on the town market, on the street, trying to pimp herself, and nobody will buy her because everybody's already slept with her. And God instructs Hosea to go back and marry her again. You know why? Because it's a picture of God and his Hebrew people. You have done everything but worship me. I buy you, I clean you up, and you go right back to your, to your dog's vomit. But I love you, and I've made a commitment, and I am not giving up on you. Do you see why this is important? This is huge. God never allows his love to be quenched, and he never keeps, allows his promises not to be fulfilled. That's what this is about. He continued to cry out to them through prophets. He never abandons them. He keeps his promises, and he pursues them. He chases this people. He continues to promise to heal them through the prophets if they would simply come back and, uh, to him and repent, and, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't. And it was after this 14 generations that you know Nebuchadnezzar kidnaps the, the best of Israel's sons. You know that because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel are part of that group. They're taken captive in ba to the Babylonian ca uh, capital, and they're trained to be Babylonian rulers. But Daniel, a godly man, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, godly men, are part of that story. And in, about, in chapter 9 of Daniel, you have a story of Daniel crying out to God. This is a cool story. Look at this with me. In the first, so this is the end of this 14-generation Abraham to the Babylonian exile. It was in the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede, the son of some weird-named guy who became king of the Babylonians. So this guy is, is uh, the successor to Nebuchadnezzar. It's been about 60 or 70 years since they've been captive. Uh, chapter or verse 2. During the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem must de lie desolate for 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God, and I pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. I also wore rough burlap and sprinkled myself with ashes. I prayed to the Lord continually, my God, and I confessed. Oh, Lord. So take a break. So what's happening here is he has been reading the scriptures. There are books coming out, one by Andy Stanley right now, that's going to say that, that the scriptures were not a big deal. I want you to know that the scriptures, the written scriptures, have always been a big deal. And you have Daniel reading a prophet that was in his lifetime, actually to find out his prophecies. And as he's reading, he sees there that the time of exile ends after 70 years, and he's doing the math. Oh, wow, it's time. So he begins to ask confession. He starts praying, Oh, Lord, you are great and an awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. But we have sinned. We've done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commandments and regulations. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets, who spoke on your authority to our kings and princes and ancestors and to all the people of the land. I am praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. 
as I was praying. So what he's praying for is a national revival. Come on, God, save our city, Jerusalem. Restore us to, to, the, to the greatest nation in the world. And as I was praying, verse 21 says, Gabriel, whom I had seen in an earlier vision, came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. He explained to me, Daniel, I have come here to give you insight and understanding. Verse 25, now listen and understand. Seven sets of 70 plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Take a breath. Don't let all the numbers throw you off. And if you grew up like me under Tim LaHaye, your mind immediately goes to the rapture. Relax. That's not what this is about. It may have some, some reference to that. But the point is, Daniel's going, okay, God, it's been 70 years, so restore your people. And God goes, look, I know you thought that 70 years meant I would restore the people. No. Now, I'm not going to restore the people now. I'm telling you, in 70 times that much, in, in that much more time, I'm going to bring somebody who's going to restore the people. The anointed one. By the way, does anybody know the actual name for the anointed one? It's not Jesus. What's the actual Hebrew word for that? Messiah. That's the word. The word Messiah means the anointed one. So from the time... The command is given to rebuild Jerusalem. Within 100 years, that command is going to be given, by the way. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. Okay, that doesn't turn you on either. Take a deep breath. Stick your wet finger in somebody's ear. You've got to understand. Daniel, one of the reasons that a lot of Jews reject the book of Daniel is because it's too specific. That's talking about Yeshua. That's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. His last name is not Christ, by the way. The word Christ is English for Messiah. This is Jesus he's talking about. So Daniel's going, dear God, please, I, I, I know that if I, I confess for our sins that you'll, you'll uh, fix your nation, you'll put us back to where we need to be. And God says to him, Daniel, I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. I've sent Gabriel to tell you that, yes, he's heard your prayer because he loves you. It goes on to say that. I've heard your prayer, but I want you to understand. I'm going to, I'm going to fix this nation. I'm going to solve it, but not what she wants, what she needs. Even Daniel thought what she needed was a restoration. God's saying, no, what she needs is salvation, redemption, to be purchased back. Daniel is praying for restored and blessed Hebrew nation like was in the days of old. But God said in response that the healing will come in time. But this healing would be through the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah. The time for God to enact his ultimate plan was on the horizon. This time, God would not reveal himself through a nation, but rather through, the one, through one of her own sons. Now God is telling this faithful Daniel that he is going to bring a restorer, an anointed one, to fix the broken thing that the Hebrew nation had become. I've already told you that within 100 years of this prayer, Cyrus orders the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And of course, about 400 years after that, or as Matthew 1 says, 14 generations later, the anointed one is born in a manger. God said to Daniel, that is the answer to your prayer. Now stick with me here. This wasn't really a new revelation from God. For a generation ahead of him, through Isaiah, God wrote this. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender shoot sprouting from a root in dry and sterile ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was actually despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the bitterest grief. He, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised. We didn't care. Yet it was our weaknesses he was carrying, 
It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought the troubles were a punishment from God on his own sin. He was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. This is written 600 years before the birth of Christ. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us have strayed like sheep. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated hardly, harshly, yet he never said a word. He was a, led as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before his shears, he didn't open his mouth. From prison and trial, they led him away to his death. But who among his people realized that he was dying for their sins? He was suffering for their punishment. He had done no wrong. And it never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to fill him with grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have a multiple of multitude of children, um, many heirs. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's plan will prosper in his hand. And when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of what he has experienced, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of one who is mighty and great because he has exposed himself to death. He was counted among those who were sinners. He bore the sins of many and interceded for sinners. The short-sighted view of the Hebrew nation was that they wanted a Hebrew nation. The problem with the Jewish people is they continually demand that God gives them a nation. And God goes, I don't want to make you a nation. I want to make you my children. Well, not, it's not that different in the church, in case you're not clear on that. We want a longer life, more money. God goes, I want to make you my kid. Are you getting it? That's exactly what this nation did. Even the disciples, the night he's betrayed, before the Passover, are still debating who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom that Jehovah's going to set up. Which one of them is going to be the greatest? Jesus had to roll his eyes and go, I love you. I'm going to take care of it. In fact, he said as much. He said, I'm about to leave you, and you guys have no idea where I'm going or what I'm doing, but don't worry. All these things I've taught you after I, after I come back, you're going to remember all this. Because they didn't get it. Because they were so stinking self-absorbed. All they wanted was what they wanted. With it, no thought for what God had might be better. No trust. No dependence on him. But God doesn't put his plan based upon our faithfulness. God did not put his plan for them on their faithfulness. God had a plan all along, and this plan was to restore his people into a right relationship with himself. He'd deal with their national inclinations later, and it will be dealt with. Don't get me wrong. I believe, I believe that God will restore the nation of Israel. I believe that Jesus will sit on his throne. There may be many, many in this room who do not, but God has promised this, and he keeps his promises. He promised David that his son will sit on that throne forever. That's why we've got King Jesus. King Jesus will be the king of the Hebrew nation. He will sit on the throne. Praise God that he keeps his word, right? Brothers and sisters, you're no more faithful than the Jews. You should be celebrating that God overlooks our stupid rhetoric and our selfish whims and says, I'm going to be faithful to you because I love you. No matter how unfaithful we are, God had a plan for them. And it wasn't to make them a great nation. It was to make them his kids. God's plan was personal. It was relational. It was a restoration. It was a fix to what sin and rebellion had against him, and his plan had broken. Continually through the prophets, he would keep his promise. 
during that second 14-generation period. He writes to Micah. Micah writes this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among people, all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose orange origins are in distant past will come from you on my behalf. Jeremiah the prophet, who lived before this time, said, For a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be king, a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the line, a land. And this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. In that day, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Matthew 1, remember where we started? Records it like this, starting in verse 17. All of those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to Babylon, and 14 from Babylon to Messiah. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. The word Messiah means the anointed one. It's the same name he uses for Daniel. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a, engaged was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered all of this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him. Help me. Does anybody remember what the name Jesus means? Salvation. Do you realize how dumb these people have to be to miss this? His name is Salvation. They call him Emmanuel throughout his life at least a dozen times, and you're going to learn this at the first of the year. What do they call Jesus? The son of David. It's a name that's used throughout his life by those who are followers of his and those who reject him. They call him the son of David. Why does he go to Bethlehem? Because it's David's hometown. What line was he from? Judah. He comes, these prophecies throughout the Old Testament. He comes as a baby, born of a virgin, called Emmanuel in the city of Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah, a son of David, unnoticed and born in a humble setting. Those are all fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And I'm going to, I, I've messed you up, Louise, but that next verse, we've got to put it up here. Here we go. You are to name him Salvation. Think like a Hebrew for a second. You are to name him Salvation, for he will, what? The ver it's, uh, I, I want you to see it. So we're in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Go ahead and put it up there. I messed you up, Louise. And she will have a son, and you will name him Salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. His people. He's a Hebrew Savior, redeeming the Hebrew nation that has been pleading with by certain faithful prophets and men of God that God would redeem them. And generations ahead, 14... Daniel cries, and God goes, I'm going to send an anointed. I'm going to fix this. This is him. God keeps his word. He is salvation, and he's going to save his people from his sin. That's why he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus is not an American savior. He's not even a Gentile savior. He's a Hebraic savior. And the first promise he made was to that people. The Hebrew people wanted, and still want to this day, a strong nation. God wanted them as sons. They wanted a ruler to unite them. God sent his son to make them a family. The Jesus we celebrate is first the redeemer of the Hebrew people. The Hebrews thought they needed a nation, strength, fame, a life like other nations. God knew they needed redemption, forgiveness, adoption, and grace.
Last week, we looked at uh, Solomon, and I, I had a couple people, uh, his, his, his swan song, which is Ecclesiastes. And I've had some people ask, do I think Solomon was saved? 
And several have said, well, I don't think so because we don't see him repenting. That's exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes is. It's one big, long, 12-chapter repentance. I was wrong. It ends with this guy saying, look, sons, I tried it all, and everything I tried, from everything a man could want with women, to wealth, to wisdom, kings came. The, the whole case is made in Ecclesiastes. I had it all. I did it all. I accomplished it all. And I'm telling you, and he wraps it up in that one verse. The whole thing needs to be read for the last verse. My conclusion is this. Fear God. Know God. Walk with God. That's his conclusion. Solomon thought that his problem was money, kingdom, wealth, stuff. He ends his life saying it's not. The Hebrew people, gosh, listen, listen to Paul. Hebrew of Hebrews. The ultimate Jew in Acts 13 preaching to a Jewish city. As Paul stood, he lifted his hand to quiet them, and he started speaking. Men of Israel, he said, and you God-fearing Gentiles. So we're not left out, but he's preaching to them. The God of this nation of Israel chose our ancestors and made them multiply and grow strong in their stay in Egypt. Then with a powerful arm, he led them out of slavery. He put up with them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Then he destroyed seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, God gave them judges to rule until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then he, the people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, who reigned for 40 years. God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about who God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to. And it is one of King David's descendants, uh, Jesus, who is God's promised Savior of Israel. Before he came, John the Baptist preached that all the people in Israel needed to repent of their sins and turn to God and be baptized. As John was finishing his ministry, he asked, Do you think I am the Messiah? No, I'm not. But he's coming soon. And I'm not even worthy to be a slave and untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers, you sons of Abraham, and also you God-fearing Gentiles, this message of salvation has been sent to you. The people of Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus as one of the prophets had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, they fulfilled the prophet's words that are read every Sabbath. They found no re legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. When they had done all that the prophes uh, prophecy said about him, they took him down from the cross and they placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And over a period of many days, he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They're now as witnesses to the people of Israel. And now we are here to bring you the good news. The promise was made to our ancestors, and God has now fulfilled it for us, their descendants, by raising Jesus. This is what the second psalm says about Jesus. You are my son. Today I became your father. For God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave. He said, I will give you a sacred blessings I promised to David. Another psalm explains it more fully. You will not allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. This isn't a reference for David. For after David had gone, the will of God in his generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. No, it's, not a re it's a reference to someone else, someone who God raised and whose body did not decay. Brothers, listen. We are here today to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, salvation. Through this man's salvation, there is forgiveness for sins. 
everyone who believes in him is made right with God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. The nation of Israel thought they needed a nation. God knew they needed a redeemer, a deliverer, a Moses that would save them not from the tyranny of someone else's oversight, but from the tyranny of sin. It was not merely God's love for the Hebrew nation that caused him to send Jesus, the Messiah. It wasn't just for them. For you're familiar with this because it's written to you Gentiles. Deuteronomy, we're going to leave that up there. Deuteronomy says that the reason he chose the nation of Israel and the Hebrew people was not because they were the most numerous or flashiest, but because he loved them. He loved them. And he sent his plan with a significant part for them because he loved them. And Jesus says this about you. He loves you. And if he kept his promise to them, he's going to keep his promise to you. We struggle with our hope. We live in, we live in a great country, in, in an even better state, the great Republic of Texas, where if we choose the right leadership, we will be a city on a hill. We'll never be a city on the hill. We'll be fallen people struggling to try to elect the right people so that our lives can be comfortable. And every one of us has a different definition of what that looks like. If you're living in South America, it's to get into this country so you can make five bucks an hour pulling grapes off of a tree. If you're a white Caucasian middle-class American, it's to keep things as they are so that you can succeed as the best you can. It depends what your upbringing is. And I'm here to tell you today what Paul told them, that God sent salvation to us, and hope is only found in him. Hope is only found in him, and I struggle with this in my flesh. I'm too much David. I do love God. I just love my understanding of God better. And I'm here to tell you that Christmas is not a notion of something that happened years ago. It's a promise fulfilled on the way to a promise fulfilled. And I shared with you at the end of last week what I want to share with you at the end of this morning, and that is that Jesus Christ made a promise when he was leaving. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I wouldn't tell you that because I don't lie. And when it's done, and when I'm done, I'm going to come back and get you. And you know what? Next week we're going to talk more about this. All that junk you're dealing with right now, go ahead and read Revelation 19. You still need to be here next week, but Revelation 19 is where we end. If you're struggling with your health, there will be no more sickness than where God's going to take you. If you're struggling with wealth, there will be no need for wealth in that kingdom. The street in your front yard is going to be made of gold. If you're struggling with your, with your heart or the order of things or injustices, all of those will be made right based on the promise of God. And because of what we know of God's interaction to this Hebrew nation, a nation that pushed back all the time, he kept his promise to them. He's going to keep his promise to you. He can't not keep his promise. Put your hope in God. You struggling with the Advent, like me? The baby in the manger is a cool story. I love the music. I like the friendliness. I really like the ham. I like all that. I like the parties. I have a hard time getting excited again about the baby that I've, I've celebrated 52 years of my life. But this year, something's happening in my heart. This year, I'm excited about the next Advent, and that is the return of Jesus Christ to fulfill his promises, even the ones you never even imagined. He's a Hebrew Savior. 
came to save the world. Lord Jesus, thank you for keeping your word. If you would keep your word to those people, you will surely keep your word to us. Thank you for promising us eternal life. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. That's not just a song about something that happened 2,000 years ago. We cry that now. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Come get us. Take us home. Wrap things up here. We're ready. We can no longer put our trust in people like Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton or the governors of our state. We must put our hope in you. We cannot put our hope in the church but of the Savior of the church. And so, Lord Jesus, put our hope Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes.